Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm reading today from a sermon once preached by Charles Spurgeon. It's from a collection of Spurgeon messages in a little booklet entitled Twelve Sermons on the Resurrection. Twelve Sermons on the Resurrection. It's in the Charles Spurgeon Library, an old collection of booklets that he put out uh, many years ago. I know that my Redeemer liveth is the name of this sermon, and the text is Job 19, verses 25 to 27. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Our text deserves our profound attention. Its preface would hardly have been written had not the matter been of the utmost importance in the judgment of the patriarch who uttered it. Listen to Job's remarkable desire. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. Perhaps hardly aware, of the, hardly aware of the full meaning of the words he was uttering, yet his holy soul was impressed with a sense of some weighty revelation concealed within his words. He therefore desired that it might be recorded in a book. He's had his desire the book of books embalms the words of Job. He wished to have them graven on a rock, cut deep into it with an iron pen, and then the lines inlaid with lead, or he would have them engraven according to the custom of the ancients upon a, a sheet of metal so that time might not be able to eat out the inscription. Well, he has not had his desire in that respect, save only that upon many and many a sepulchre, those words of Job stand recorded, I know that my Redeemer liveth. It is the opinion of some commentators that Job, in speaking of the rock here, intended his own rock-hewn sepulchre and desired that this might be his epitaph, that it might be cut deep so that Ages should not wear it out, that when they asked, Where does Job sleep? As soon as they saw the sepulchre of the patriarch of Uz, they might learn that he died in hope of resurrection, resting upon a living Redeemer. Now, whether such a sentence adorned the portals of Job's last sleeping place, we know not. But certainly no words could have been more fitly chosen. Should not the man of patience, the mirror of endurance, the pattern of trust, bear as his memorial this golden line which is as full of all the patience of hope and hope of patience as mortal language can be? Who among us could select a more glorious motto for his last escutcheon? In discoursing upon these words, I shall speak upon three things. First, let us, with the patriarch, descend into the grave and behold the ravages of death. And then, with him, 
Let us look up on high for present consolation. And still in his admirable company, let us, in the third place, anticipate future delights. <clears throat> First of all, uh, with the patriarch of Uz, let us descend into the sepulchre. The body has just been divorced from the soul. Friends who loved most tenderly have said, Bury my dead out of my sight. The body is borne upon the bier and consigned to the silent earth. It is surrounded by the earthworks of death. Death has a host of troops. If the locusts and the caterpillars be God's army, well, the worms are the army of death. These hungry warriors begin to attack the city of man. They commence with the outworks. They storm the munition and overturn the walls. The skin, the city wall of manhood, is utterly broken down, and the towers of its glory covered with confusion. How speedily the cruel invaders deface all beauty. The face gathers blackness. The countenance is defiled with corruption. Those cheeks, once fair with youth and ruddy with health, have fallen in, even as a, a bowing wall and a, a tottering fence. Those eyes, the, the windows of the mind whence joy and sorrow looked forth by turns, are now filled up with the dust of death. Those lips, the doors of the soul, the gates of man's soul, are, are carried away, and the bars thereof are broken. Alas, ye windows of agates and gates of carbuncle, where are ye now? How shall I mourn for thee, O thou captive city? For the mighty men have utterly spoiled thee. Thy neck, once like a tower of ivory, has become as a fallen column. Thy nose, so lately comparable to the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus, is as a ruined hovel. And thy head which towered like Carmel, lies now low as the clods of the valley. Where is beauty now? The most lovely cannot be known from the most deformed. Cruel you have been, ye warriors of death. The skin is gone. The troops have entered into the town of man's soul, and now they pursue their work of devastation. The pitiless marauders fall upon the body itself. There are those noble aqueducts, the veins through which the streams of life were wont to flow. These, instead of being rivers of life, have become blocked up with the soil and wastes of death. And now they must be pulled to pieces. Not a single relic of them shall be spared. Dear friends, why should we wish it to have it otherwise? Why should we desire to preserve the body when the soul was gone? Do not seek to avoid what God has proposed. Do not look upon it as a gloomy thing. Regard it as a necessity. Nay, more, view it as the platform of a miracle, the lofty stage of resurrection. Since Jesus shall surely raise again from the dead the particles of this body, however divided from one another. We have heard of miracles, 
But what a miracle is the resurrection. All the miracles of Scripture, yea, even those wrought by Christ, are small compared with this. The philosopher says, How is it possible that God shall hunt out every particle of the human frame? Well, he can do it. He has but to speak the word, and every single atom, though it may have traveled thousands of leagues, though it may have been blown as dust across the desert, and anon have fallen upon the bosom of the sea, and then have descended into the depths thereof to be cast up on a desolate shore, sucked up by plants, fed on again by beasts, or, or passed into the fabric of another man, I say that individual atom shall find its fellows, and the whole company of particles at the trump of the archangel shall travel to their appointed place, and the body, the very body which was laid in the ground, shall rise again. When the fabric has been absolutely broken up, the tenement all pulled down, ground to pieces, and flung in handfuls to the wind, so that no relic of it as is left. Yet when Christ stands in the latter days upon the earth, all the structures shall be brought together, bone to his bone. Then shall the might of omnipotence be seen. This is the doctrine of the resurrection. And happy is he who finds no difficulty here, who looks at it as being an impossibility with man, but a possibility with God, and lays hold upon the omnipotence of the Most High, and says, Thou sayest it, and it shall be done. I comprehend thee not, great God, I marvel at thy purpose to raise my mouldering bones, but I know that thou dost great wonders, and I am not surprised that thou shouldst conclude the great drama of thy creating works here on earth by recreating the human frame by the same power by which thou didst bring from the dead the body of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and by that same divine energy which has regenerated human souls in thine own image. Number two, having thus descended into the grave and seen nothing there but what is loathsome, let us look up with the patriarch and behold a sun shining with present comfort. I know, said he, that my Redeemer liveth. The word Redeemer here used is in the original Goel, kinsman. The duty of the kinsman, the relative, or Goel, was this. Suppose an Israelite had alienated his estate, as in the case of Naomi and Ruth. Suppose a, a patrimony, which had belonged to a family, had passed away through poverty. It was the Goel's business, the Redeemer's business, to pay the price as the next of kin, and to buy back the heritage. Boaz stood in that relation to Ruth. Now, the body may be looked upon as the heritage of the soul, the soul's small farm, that little plot of earth, 
in which the soul has been wont to walk and delight, as a man walketh in his garden or, or, or dwelleth in his house. Now, that becomes alienated. Death, like Ahab, takes away the vineyard from us who are as Naboth. We lose our patrimonial estate. Death sends his troops to take our vineyard and to spoil the vines thereof and ruin it. But we turn around to death and say, I know that my Goel liveth, my Redeemer, and he will redeem this heritage. I've lost it. Thou takest it from me lawfully, O death, because my sin hath forfeited my right. I have lost my heritage through my own offense and through that of my first parent, Adam. But there lives one who will buy this back. Brethren, Job could say this of Christ long before he had descended upon earth. I know that he liveth. And now that he has ascended up on high and led captivity captive, surely we may with double emphasis say, I know that my Goel, my kinsman, my Redeemer liveth, and that he hath paid the price, that I should have back my patrimony, so that in my flesh I shall see God. Yes, my hands, you are redeemed with blood, but not with corruptible things as with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Yes, heaving lungs and palpitating heart, you've been redeemed. He that redeemed the soul to be his altar has also redeemed the body, that it may be a temple for the Holy Ghost. Not even the bones of Joseph can remain in the house of bondage. No smell of the fire of death may pass upon the garments which his holy children have worn in the furnace. Remember, too, that it was always considered to be the duty of the Goel, not merely to redeem by price, but where that failed, to redeem by power. Hence, when Lot was carried away captive by the four kings, Abraham summoned his own hired servants and the servants of all his friends and went out against the kings of the east and brought back Lot and the captives of Sodom. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, who once has played the kinsman's part by paying the price for us, liveth, and he will redeem us by power. O death, thou tremblest at this name. Thou knowest the might of our kinsmen. Against his arm thou canst not stand. Thou didst once meet him, foot to foot, in stern battle, and, O death, thou didst indeed tread upon his heel. He voluntarily submitted to this, or else, O death, thou hadst no power against him. But he slew thee, death, he slew thee. He rifled all thy caskets, took from thee the key of thy castle, burst open the door of thy dungeon, and now thou knowest death. Thou hast no power to hold my body. Thou mayest set thy slaves to devour it, but thou shalt give it up, and all their spoil must be restored. Insatiable death 
From thy greedy maw yet shall return the multitudes whom thou hast devoured. Thou shalt be compelled by the Savior to restore thy captives to the light of day. I think I see Jesus coming from his father's servants. The chariots of the Lord are twenty thousand, even thousands of angels. Blow ye the trumpet, blow ye the trumpet. Emmanuel rides to battle. The most mighty in majesty girds on his sword. He comes, he comes to snatch by power his people's lands from those who have invaded their portion. Oh, how glorious victory. No battle shall there be. He comes, he sees, he conquers. The sound of the trumpet shall be enough. Death shall fly affrighted, and at once from beds of dust and silent clay to realms of everlasting day, the righteous shall arise. To linger here a moment, there was yet, very conspicuously in the Old Testament, we are informed, a third duty of the Goel, which was to avenge the death of his friend. If a person had been slain, the Goel was the avenger of blood. Snatching up his sword, he at once pursued the person who had been guilty of bloodshed. And so now, let us picture ourselves as being smitten by death. His arrow has just pierced us to the heart, but in the act of expiring, our lips are able to boast of vengeance. And in the face of the monster, we cry, I know that my Goel liveth. Thou mayest fly, O death, as rapidly as thou wilt, but no city of refuge can hide thee from him. He will overtake thee. He will lay hold upon thee, O thou skeleton monarch, and he will avenge my blood on thee. I would that I had powers of eloquence to work out this magnificent thought. Chrysostom, or Christmas Evans, could picture the the flight of the king of terrors, the pursuit by the redeemer, the overtaking of the foe and the slaying of the destroyer. Christ shall certainly avenge himself on death for all the injury which death hath done to his beloved kinsman. Comfort thyself then, O Christian. Thou hast ever living, even when thou diest, one who avenges thee, one who has paid the price for thee, and one whose strong arms shall yet set thee free. Passing on in our text to notice the next word, it seems that Job found consolation not only in the fact that he had a goel, a redeemer, but that this redeemer liveth. He does not say, I know that my goel shall live, but that he lives having a clear view for the self-existence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you and I, looking back, do not say, I know that he did live, but he lives today, this very day. You that mourn and sorrow for venerated friends, your prop and pillar in years gone by, you may go to Christ with confidence because he not only lives, 
that he is the source of life, and you therefore believe that he can give forth out of himself life to those whom you have committed to the tomb. He is the Lord and giver of life originally, and he shall be especially declared to be the resurrection and the life when the legions of his redeemed shall be glorified with him. If I saw no fountain from which life could stream to the dead, I would yet believe the promise when God said that the dead shall live. But when I see the fountain provided, and I know that it is full to the brim, and that it runneth over, I can rejoice without trembling. Since there is one who can say, I am the resurrection and the life, it is a blessed thing to see the means already before us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us look up to our God who liveth at this very time. Still, the morrow of Job's comfort, it seems to me, lay in that little word, my. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Oh, to get hold of Christ. I know that in his offices he is precious. But, dear friends, we must get a property in him before we can really enjoy him. What is honey in the wood to me if, like the fainting Israelites, I dare not eat? It is honey in my hand, honey on my lip, which enlightens mine eyes like those of Jonathan. What is gold in the mine to me? Men are beggars in Peru and beg their bread in California. It is gold in my purse, which will satisfy my necessities, purchasing the bread I need. So what is a kinsman if he is not a kinsman to me? A redeemer that does not redeem me, an avenger who will never stand up for my blood, or of what avail were such? But Job's faith was strong and firm in the conviction that the Redeemer was his. Dear friends, dear friends, can all of you say, I know that my Redeemer liveth? The question is simple and simply put, but oh, what solemn things hang upon your answer. Is it my Redeemer? I charge you, rest not. Be not content until by faith you can say yes. I cast myself upon him. I am his, and therefore he is mine. Now, I know that full many of you, while you look upon all else that you have as not being yours, yet you can say, my Redeemer is mine. He is the only piece of property which is really ours. We borrow all else, the house, the children, nay, our very body, we must return to the great lender. But Jesus, we can never leave. For even when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord, and I know that even death cannot separate us from him, so that body and soul are with Jesus truly even in the dark hours of death, in the long night of the sepulchre, in the separate state of spiritual existence. Beloved, have you Christ? It may be you hold him with a feeble hand. You half think it is presumption to say he is my Redeemer. And yet remember, if you have but faith as a grain of mustard seed, that little faith entitles you to say, and say now, I know that my Redeemer liveth. 
There's another word in this consoling sentence which no doubt serves to give a zest to the comfort of Job. And I'm going to stop there and ask you to wait till next time to figure out what that word might be. Another word in that sentence I know that my Redeemer liveth. What's another word uh, which will serve to give a zest to your comfort too? Come back next time and we'll wrap up this message. I know that my Redeemer liveth. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.